0: Actually, a lot. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com. That's Chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VGW. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: Welcome to StageCraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with the stars and creators of the hottest shows on Broadway, off-Broadway, and beyond. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of StageCraft, I'm talking to Gareth Owen. The British sound designer's work can be seen, or heard anyway, on Broadway in shows like Come From Away, Summer, and Spring Awakening, as well as Off-Broadway in the recent Clueless, and has played the West End with Bat Out of Hell, In the Heights, Merrily We Roll Along, and many others. Also on his docket is the new musical about Princess Diana called Diana, now playing at the La Jolla Playhouse in San Diego. In the theatre industry, it's a dirty little not-so-secret that a lot of theatre-goers, and more than a few Tony voters, don't really know what sound design is. Nor would we know a good one when we hear it. I'll be the first to admit that I'm one of the underinformed. and Gareth is in the studio with me to help all of us get a better handle on this important but little-understood part of theatre-making. Hey, Gareth. Thanks for being here. Hey,
2: good. Great to be here. Thank you very much for inviting
0: me. So, I feel like sound design is possibly the most thankless thing a person can do in the theater, because not only is it actually invisible, but when it's done right, people don't notice it, right? Because they're too busy talking about how much they liked the lyrics to that musical, or let's be honest, how much they didn't like the lyrics to that new musical, right? Which is the And the only reason they can do that is because they heard the words, but they're not talking about the fact that they heard the words. Um, so, for just to help us out a little bit, how do we know What's good sound design and how can we learn to recognize it? Well, you're right. It certainly is the most thankless job in theater. (laughs)
2: Um, Absolutely. If you get it right, nobody notices. And if you get it wrong, you just get shouted at by everybody from the director to the musical supervisor to the composer to the lyricist. I mean, everybody hates you when you get it wrong. I mean, that is absolutely a true fact. Um, What constitutes good sound design? Well, I mean, I always feel like the golden rule for sound design is that you have to hear every word. I feel like that's, that's sound design 101, kind of like, I don't know, for lighting designers, you have to be able to see people's faces. Right. For scenic design, the set needs to not crash into itself. I feel like for sound design, you've got to hear every word. But it's it's so much more than that. It's about hearing the details of the orchestrations. It's about making sure the people in the back of the of the balcony can hear everything. It's about emoting the audience. It's about... It's about transmitting the energy from the stage from the orchestra pit to the audience in a way that involves them in the production
0: and what is how how would you describe less successful sound design is it muddy as a sound is it uh mushier or less clear or uh less emotive i guess like what what is it then how would we recognize uh sound design that maybe isn't doing everything it could Well,
2: I think the most common failure in sound design is not hearing the words because the orchestra is too loud or being able to hear the words but not being able to clearly understand what they're saying. And that isn't always the fault of the sound designer. I mean, there's at the end of the day, all the sound designer can do is make what comes into the microphone is louder. So if the cast aren't clear at source, then the sound designers aren't hiding to nothing.
0: If I'm not enunciating, you're still not going to understand me, (laughs) right? Exactly.
2: If you don't speak clearly, a good sound designer can... There are things that a good sound designer can do to help with that, but still, at the end of the day, it will be unclear, unenunciated dialogue, just louder. Right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And uh it sounds like sound design sort of as we know it is a fairly recent uh invention um what's your understanding of what sound design as it exists today uh when that evolved
2: well i mean i, I specialize in musicals so i can really only speak to musicals yep. i discovered a, a long time ago that there's a lot of people out there who are much better at plays than i am um you know i i can't i can't I can't get excited about whether or not it's a 1921 doorbell or a 1923 doorbell or whether the particular bird sound effect that I have would actually be indigenous to um, the state of Maine in the late autumn where the play is set. I just can't get excited about those things. And I just realise there are so many other people out there who are so much better at it than I am. So all of my knowledge and indeed everything that I can share with you as, as part of this podcast is really to do with musicals. I think the first time, and I know there, I know there was musical theatre sound design prior to this, but I think the first time that the role of the sound designer really came into focus was Andrew Lloyd Webber's production of Jesus Christ Superstar. I mean, I think certainly in the UK that might well have been the first time radio mics right. made it out of the box, and I think they had like two or three radios, and it was the first time they they amplified music from the orchestra pit. At least, at least, in my understanding, and that is the first time, to, for, for my money, that people started to really start thinking about sound design as something other
0: than a purely technical job. So it kind of came in with the entry of rock to a, a, a to a degree in the into musical theater. Um, Jesus Christ Superstar being one of the earliest, along with you know hair and things like that.
2: So. Yes, I would say so, and I. But I think that is a function of the genre in that rock Mm. rock music requires amplification indeed rock music didn't exist until amplification was there to support it so i guess it's i guess it's fair to say that the amplification side of musical theater sound design came along with the rock musical it was a it was a requirement but it was a skill that nobody had and it was technology that didn't exist it required it required the creation the creation of a discipline, I guess.
0: And what are the tools at your disposal uh, as you're
2: designing sound? Fundamentally, the the basic tools of musical theatre sound design are microphones, speakers, and the mixing desk. There's lots of other tools that we have access to to enhance the basics. Things like reverberation units to make voices sound nicer, um, sound effects playback machines, um, even backing tracks, all of these are, are tools to enhance the basics, but fundamentally you 're talking about capturing a source with a microphone, mixing that source with a mixing desk and passing that signal out of a speaker so that the audience
0: can hear it. And what are some of the challenges to, uh, to the craft that I think that, a lot of, that you think a lot of people aren't aware of or wouldn't even think about?
2: I think the primary difficulty
0: in musical theatre sound design is
2: getting a consistent sound throughout the house that does the job it needs to do. So, for example, if you're doing 42nd Street, you really want... Which a, you did in London. Which <laughs> Just I, recently. Which, which <laughs> yeah. I did do in London uh, in Drury Lane quite recently. Yeah. Um, the you know, Your task there is really to have a very natural sound um, consistent through the space so that even the people at the back can hear the nuance of the orchestra and what's going on on stage. But you need to stay out of the way of the show. At no point should anybody think about the sound on a show like 42nd Street. Even if you're applying quite a large amount of amplification and quite a large amount of effects, you need to be transparent and invisible. The flip side of that is another show that I've done recently um, in London called Bat Out of Hell. You couldn't get further removed from Forty Second Street than Bat Out of Hell. <laughs> yes. Everything. This is, this is the meatloaf uh musical for people who don't know. Everything the audience hears is amplified, and there's no no apologies made for that. The speaker stacks are huge. That's in fact what a lot of people have come for, right? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. It's a rock concert in the theatre, and if you delivered anything else, you would be hung-drawn and quartered by the Jim's Diamond fans. Um, in a show like that, we make no apologies. In fact, the biggest challenge there is to keep control of the raucous energy coming from the stage and the pit and deliver it in such a way that it feels like a rock concert without terrifying the musical theatre audiences. <laughs> because, of course, rock concerts are really, really loud and not every musical theatre patron is a big fan of loud. So it's right. about delivering loud without scaring off the older generation of musical theatre lovers. Right.
0: I also feel like there must be a role that individual theaters themselves play in how you, uh, how you fit sound design, how you make sound design work. Like I imagine the sound design for come from away here on Broadway is a different beast from the, you know, the one in come in come from away in London because the, they're different spaces and they might work differently. Is that something you come up, come up against a lot?
2: Yes, I mean, it's very fair to say that the space that we're performing in makes a dramatic difference to what the sound design can be. Um, I mean, actually, sometimes the space actually dictates the sound design. Mm. So if you're in a really big echoey space, it's very, very difficult to do quiet, Because the quickest and easiest way to beat bad acoustics in a big echoey theatre is actually to overpower them. And that is why, uh, certainly in the early days of rock and roll, you'd go into stadiums and it would be really, really loud because the acoustics would be so bad that the only way to beat the acoustics was to overpower them with direct sound coming from the stage. And that does apply to some of the larger Broadway and West End houses in that the acoustics are so bad, the only way to beat them is to turn the show up. Um, And as a result of that, the sound of the show can be dictated by the space for better or for worse. How does... A show like come from away, uh, come from away, London differ from come from away, Broadway. Well, the spaces are quite significantly different. So, Broadway, for a start, the theatre only has two levels, whereas in London it has three levels. Right. That requires more speakers. It requires more projection to get the sound further up the theatre and further back.
0: Right. Right. Let's talk a little bit about how you found sound design. Was this always something that interested you or how, how did it uh, turn into your career path?
2: Well, I started off working in a nightclub doing lighting. And then the guy who owned the nightclub came to me one day and he said, right, we're not selling enough tickets. We're going to start doing a live sound night. Do you know anything about live sound? We're going to have bands in. Do you know anything about that? And I was like, yeah, totally. I can do that. Sound's no worries we'll get all that sorted so he said fine um here's a checkbook go and buy all the kit you need uh get it set up and let's start doing live bands so i went out and i bought a book called live sound (laughs) and i read the book and i read it again because it didn't make a lot of sense and then i went out and bought like a hundred grand's worth of sound equipment with other people's money set it all up plugged it in tested it It wasn't right. Unplugged it all, set it up again. That process went on for about three weeks until I worked out what the hell I was doing. Started doing live bands. Now, luckily, I was doing live bands in a little town quite a long way from anyone who knew anything about sound, which meant that the fact that the sound was rubbish went unnoticed by the local populace, which which was to my benefit. So I got to learn how to make a kick drum sound good, how to make a vocal sound good, how to make a... how to make a French flute sound good without uh, without the scrutiny of uh, a, a big city watching me, and that that was my initial um, introduction to live sound. Then, when I went to university, um, I ended up doing nightclub security. Um, I ended up uh, being the person standing on the door who says, uh, "Sorry, mate, you've had too much drink. You've uh, you've got to go home." and
0: um, we, you are quite tall to be fair for people who have not met you yeah
2: <laughs> ba- back then i used to think i was really tough now i realize i'm really glad i'm not doing nightclub security anymore <laughs> um one day a um, i'm still at university at this point um one day um a big band show up and i go to the guy who's doing the sound and say i'm doing a degree in acoustics and i'd love to get some work experience it, it was a complete lie. I was doing a degree in underwater science, but... Underwater science? <laughs> underwater science. Absolutely <laughs> nothing to do with acoustics. Uh, but I told him that I was doing a degree in acoustics. And he said, oh, that's great. If you want to come do some work experience, next week we're doing a, a big concert out on, the, out in the big field near the university. So I duly showed up, did a week of work experience working on this music festival, and The next week, I got a phone call saying, hey, listen, you did a really great job. Do you want to come and work for us this summer doing rock festivals? So I duly trundled off around the country doing rock festivals like Reading Rock Festival, Glastonbury, um, big big rock festivals in the United Kingdom. And I worked for this company, and I worked for them for a few years and ended up mixing some quite big bands. And then one day, one of the guys who was working there came to me, and he said... "Um, you know a bit about theater don 't you? and I was like, "Yes, absolutely, thinking, well no, not really, and um, why did he think you, you did do you do you know well, interestingly, I had done theater lighting because my dad was in charge my dad was a teacher and he was in charge of the lighting rig at his school oh, so one sure. of my earliest memories was my dad up a ladder focusing lights and him yelling at me to turn the number one on and turn number two off sure. and this kind of stuff so i had done some theater i'd done some theater lighting but i didn't know about theater uh but at some point this must have passed as a conversation probably on a tour bus probably involving drinking well probably other things back then yeah. and So he came to me and he said, oh, you know about theatre, don't you? Um, I've been offered a gig mixing a band called Deep Purple. Would you uh, mind covering the job that I'm doing, which is mixing a West End musical? So I said, yeah, sure, absolutely, no problem at all. So I moved to London and I dropped out of university, didn't finish my degree, and I bought a tent and I lived in the garden of the band for... Of Deep Purple. No, no, no. Oh. <laughs> not no, full, no, not, no, that would be fun. Literally. I know, I what, that's a really good story. Pearl, I <laughs> My story was quite good anyway. No, you're right, you're right. You're right. Um, I lived in the band, in the garden of the... Band for the show, which was ah. a tribute to Blues Brothers, okay. and it was running in the Whitehall Theatre, which is now the Trafalgar Theatre mm. in London. So I somehow walked into the West End as a head of sound and started mixing this musical. Now, luckily, this musical was more concert than musical, mm. so I, you know, I, I wasn't too far out of my depth, but from there. Um, The musical supervisor of that show has really, uh, really enjoyed my mix and said, Would you like to be the sound designer for the UK tour of Godspell? Directed by Scott Schwartz, um, the composer Stephen Schwartz, who I'd never heard of.
0: Yeah, sure. (laughs) Um,
2: (laughs) The composer Stephen Schwartz, who I'd never heard of, uh, will be heavily involved in it. Um, Would you like to be the sound designer? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, sounds easy. Don't, it doesn't sound like that would be too difficult. Yeah, sure, put me down. You'll notice there's a, there's a trend through my career <laughs> history which is saying yes to things that a sane person would have run a mile from. So I ended up being the sound designer for the Godspell UK tour, working with Stephen Schwartz, working with Scott Schwartz, and that started a relationship that has continues to this day. Um, I re- relatively recently done... Uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is um, lyrics by Stephen and directed by Scott. Right. And I'm about to do um, a big production of Prince of Egypt, um, which is Stephen's new musical, uh, new I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Newish. They, based, on, based on based on the, on the old yeah. on an older movie, but a new musical. Yeah. And uh, so that relationship. Where's where Prince of Egypt? I'm not sure if I'm allowed to tell you that. Oh, okay. Yet. I don't fine. think it's public knowledge.
0: All right. So I can't. tell you I didn't you that
2: ask. Yet. Um, but you know maybe it'll maybe it'll have, maybe it'll uh, be public knowledge yeah. by the time this uh, this <laughs> right. podcast airs um right. but yeah that relationship continues to this day and i never really look back um i kept mixing the occasional rock band but really moved into musical theater and bypassed the standard route up in musical theater which is most people start as A radio mic runner backstage or start as an assistant designer and work their way up and somehow by coming in through this side route from rock and roll i bypassed all of the traditional methods of working your way up in the theater sound industry
0: it it also it it seems like uh that also sets you up for what you seem to specialize in and what your interest is in as you just told us is this sort of rock Musicals with rock sounds and contemporary sounds, like you work with David Bryan, who who wrote the music to Diana, and used to be in Bon Jovi. And um, you know, you did Summer. Like they're, they're, uh, uh, a lot of the stuff you work on has a very contemporary uh, music sound to it. I
2: think it's definitely true to say that the shows that I enjoy the most are the big, flashy rock and roll musicals. Right. Um, I mean, people, somebody said to me the other day, oh, do you ever work at the National Theatre? And I'm like, no. I'm unashamedly commercial. <laughs> they like, far too worthy for me. Um, I, I, but what I enjoy is big, flashy and rock and roll. And I think that my background helps in that. A lot of musical theatre sound designers began their careers doing plays. So for them, the fundamentals of sound effects and reverb and soundscapes and ambience that all comes second nature to them but they've had to learn the skills of how to make a band sound good whereas for me it's the other way around I get into a theatre and I don't have to think twice about how to make a kick drum sound good or how to balance a vocal uh, how to balance lead vocals with BVs that comes naturally to me from my rock and roll background but I have to think quite hard about sound effects and um, and the other uh, more theatrical Side of sound design. That's not to say I don't enjoy doing things like sound effects, but it does mean I have to think about it harder than I suspect most other sound designers
0: do. Right? Can you give us sort of a thumbnail sense of kind of the different m- moods you're going for as a sound designer? Sort of what your work is as a designer in terms of like how did how does how did what you were going for with something like Come From Away differ from what you were going for with Clueless in terms of what the audience heard and how it heard it?
2: I think the most important thing to do as a sound designer for musical theatre is to suspend your ego at the door. Because what I have discovered on multiple, multiple occasions is what I go into a project thinking a show is supposed to sound like is very rarely how it sounds come opening night. And one of my primary jobs is to absorb everybody else's opinions about how something should sound, amalgamate them together into something that hopefully isn't rubbish. So my idea as to how Come From Away was supposed to sound grossly different to how um, the musical supervisor and the orchestrator heard the show in their heads. Indeed, it was very different to how the
0: composer heard it in his head as well. Can you give us a sense of what these all these different like, one person is saying, what, amplified or rocky, and another person is saying more folky? Or, like, what? what? How is what, what is the vocabulary that people are using to describe these different sounds that well, they're
2: going for? Well, again, that's tricky. I mean, one of the big challenges of sound design is that everybody has an opinion. And the problem is that you have to accept the fact that a lot of people have opinions and a lot of people have a right to an opinion. So... It would be it would be wrong of me to dismiss the opinion of the musical supervisor on a show as to how they think the show should sound, because they've probably spent far longer with the music than I have. The composer certainly has spent longer with this music than I have. The orchestrator and the arranger, these people have spent more, way more time with this show than I have. So they are much more likely to have in their heads a realistic idea of what the show's supposed to sound like. So I feel that often, rather than going into a show with a fixed, okay, this is what I'm going to sound like, make it sound like, I feel like often I go into a show with the intention to correctly interpret what everybody else in the room thinks the show is supposed to sound like and deliver the best possible combination of those things. You just mentioned Diana as an example. Well, there we have a great example of differing viewpoints as to how a show should sound. So you've got David Bryan, um, as you mentioned, who is um, the keyboard player one of the main guys of Bon Jovi. He's been in a rock band all his life. Um, he wants everything louder than loud. Um, you know, if it goes up to 11, that's where he wants it. Um, he mentioned regularly that there's a button on the SSL mixing desk called uh, ELE which stands for everything louder than everything else and balancing that with our director Chris Ashley who has a much I guess has a much better sense of what a musical theatre audience expect to hear. Balancing that with our orchestrator who wants to hear all the detail from the band and Balanced again with our choreographer, who wants all the dance breaks rocking and loud. You've got those differing opinions. You've got the producers who need to accommodate the predominantly older audience in the theatre that we were, uh, the theatre that we were taking and previewing in, which was down in La Jolla. So. You get a real sense of being stuck in the middle between people who want it louder, people who want it quieter, people who are worried that you can't hear the words, people who are worried that you can't hear the detail in the orchestra. It's about trying to strike a balance, keep all those people happy. And that can be quite up and down as the process goes on. It's usually a day when I feel like we're winning and usually a day when I feel like we're losing. And sometimes you can often set your watch by it. I always know that the Tuesday back in the second week of previews after everyone's had a day off but when all of the cast and band are pacing themselves for a long hard week you can you can set your watch by the fact that that's going to be a bad sound day and you're going to get to notes at the end of the day and it, it's going to be rough but the goal is to assimilate everyone's opinions and produce something that everyone's happy with hopefully with your own uh with your own personal stamp on it as well but you know
0: The last time you and I spoke, you started to tell me a little bit about some of the technology that you're developing for some of your own work. Uh, Can you tell us a little more about that and what it is and what it's allowing you to do that you couldn't before? Um, Well, I guess to to
2: answer that question, we should talk about first about the traditional method of doing musical theatre sound. The traditional method is speakers around the proscenium. And then rows of delay speakers that run out through the audience, uh, that pick up the sound as it starts to drop through the room. So, there's, if you if you're sitting in the in the orchestra of um, if you're sitting in the orchestra of a, of a Broadway house, you look up, you'll see rows of what we call delay speakers, and you know they run in lines back through the auditorium, and they allow us to pick the volume up as you move further away from the stage and make it so that you can still hear what's going on, even at the back of the orchestra or at the back of the mezzanine. And that's the traditional way of doing it. We've been doing it like that for a long time. And in recent years, there's been the introduction, well, not so much the introduction of new technology, but the implementation of old technology, um, which is is based on what we call the cocktail party effect Um, the the technical name for it is binaural unmasking and what it allows you to do is that if you're standing in a cocktail party it's really noisy and lots of noise going on around you you can look across the room and your brain has the ability to binaurally unmask what somebody's saying across the room even if that's not the loudest thing you're hearing so you can have somebody talking next to you you can have 10 people talking to you a couple of feet away, but if you concentrate, you can look across the room and binaurally unmask what somebody is saying 10, 15 feet away from you. And that's because your brain can use direction as well as volume to differentiate sounds. And what we are starting to do in theater, and this is the cutting edge of theater sound design, we're starting to use technology that allows us to binaurally unmask what's happening on stage. So rather than the traditional way of doing it, which is to have basically the same sound coming out of every speaker. So what you're hearing basically in most musical theatre shows is, is fundamentally a stereo mix. It's like what you hear in your home. Sound is coming out of basically two speakers and the whole sound comes out of two speakers. There are other speakers, but those speakers all kind of contain the same information. And what we're doing with this new technology is we're creating horizontal lines of speakers and then spreading all of the different sound sources across the horizontal line in minute detail and then tracking the actors on stage and moving their moving the sound of their voices so that it's perfectly in line with where they are on the stage and what that means is that if you listen to the orchestra and you want to hear what the second clarinet is doing, you can concentrate on the second clarinet and hear it in the same way that if there was if the band was playing live in front of you at a cocktail party, you could look at the second clarinet and hear what they are doing. Likewise, if you get it right and you correctly track everybody and correctly position and have the system set up properly, you can have 15 or 20 ensemble members singing on stage. And by looking at any one of them, you can actually hear them. Your brain can decouple all the other sounds and you can hear that individual person. And this allows me to back up to a conversation, uh, to something you asked me earlier, which is what is the difference between Come From Away on Broadway and Come From Away in London. And the difference, fundamental difference, is that we've employed this new technology on Come From Away in London because it wasn't ready to be used two years ago when we opened Broadway. And it's been for a show like come from away it's been a real eye opener because what often happens in in shows it's pretty revolutionary cool and that sounds cool it's pretty revolutionary and i think it, i think you will see this technology gradually taking over the west end and broadway
0: what's next for you
2: well i'm here in new york for the workshop for the new michael jackson musical then i fly home having not seen my wife and kids for 6 weeks and uh, i've got Couple of months off, and which
0: congratulations!
2: Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm very excited, <laughs> so are they. Yeah, um, then I'm doing the 50 year anniversary production of Joseph the and Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat oh, at yeah. the London Palladium for Andrew, and from there, I'm doing uh, the new Mamma Mia show called Mamma Mia The Party, which is happening at the O2 Arena in London. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, I'm then doing a new musical um, with music by Max Martin uh, called And Juliet. And for those of you who don't know who Max Martin is, I'm not sure what the order is, but in, in, the, in the list of most successful songwriters of all time, it's something like John Lennon, Max Martin, Paul McCartney, or something like that. I, I'm not quite sure what the order is. But pretty much every major pop artist today has been produced or composed by Max Martin, um, Taylor Swift, Pink, Backstreet Boys—you uh, know, you name it—they, they, he, they—he's—he's been involved with all of them. So we're taking a lot of modern, uh, contemporary pop music and making it into a musical about what happens if Juliet decides not to drink the poison and decides to go on with her life after Romeo dies. Which is a quite an interesting concept. So that sounds sure. delightful. <laughs> and we've just finished doing a workshop of it in London, and it's really quite
0: good. Um, <laughs> well, we look forward to seeing all of those. <laughs>
2: yeah, and that that kind of takes me through until just after the summer. So, all right, yeah. so
0: you're keeping busy. Okay. Yes. Well, we'll see you back on Broadway again soon. I have no doubt. Um, thanks for coming in. It was great to talk to you. Thanks, Gareth.
2: Thank you very much. It was very enjoyable. <music>
0: That was Gareth Owen, the sound designer of shows like Come From Away, now playing on Broadway, and Diana, now at the La Jolla Playhouse in San Diego. If you like what you've heard on this and other episodes of StageCraft, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe wherever finer podcasts are dispensed. And here's a little news for fans of podcasts. I'll be in Nashville from May 31st through June 2nd for the first PodX conference, bringing together your favorite networks, podcasters, and podcasts, From true crime and politics, to pop culture and storytelling, to, of course, theater and stagecraft, all in one weekend. On the next episode of Stagecraft, I talk to director Sam Mendes, whose busy New York season includes the hit Broadway play The Ferryman and the upcoming run of The Lehman Brothers. Until then, see you at the theater.